You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning. I want to welcome everybody to the mighty metro region of the great Los Angeles Church of Christ. So good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, We've got a great service planned out today. I'm super excited about it. You know, as you know, and, and we all know, there's so much happening in our world right now, and and we're all kind of going through some pretty major stuff together. So it's really great to be able to be together this morning in spirit, if not in body, but at least we're together in spirit, and we're going to worship God. We're going to have a great time focused on God, and I can't wait to hear the speaker that we get to hear. Um, but, the, you know, despite everything happening in the world and, and, the, and the changes in Preferably some great changes are going to be happening here uh, in our country and in our world. And I know we're all praying for this. Um, I want to just remind us what the Bible tells us about the kingdom of God and about his church. It says, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what we're here for. And the great thing about the kingdom of God is, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And uh, that's exciting to me. And it's great to just be together. Um, We've got a special treat today. You know, uh, as, as as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're going through a lot right now, and a lot of us are learning, a lot of us are working through things, and a lot of us are learning new things and, and important things. And uh, there, the, the great thing about the kingdom of God is there's always people who, who God sends to help us. And I'm really excited. Uh, a very, very special friend of mine, Dr. Ben Barnett, will be preaching for us this morning. Uh, Dr. Ben Barnett has uh, been married to Tammy for about 30 years. Uh, they have three kids, Peyton, Ben, and Jordan. He's been a disciple for 27 years. He's the evangelist of the Bridgepoint Church in Atlanta. He's a graduate from West Point Military Academy, captain of the football team. Pretty awesome. Um, he received an MDiv and a doctorate in ministry from McAfee School of Theology, where he's actually an adjunct professor now. He did his doctoral thesis on breaking the silence courageous conversations about race, racism, and reconciliation in the local church. So you know why I was asking for him to come preach to us? He's, you know, I know him just as a good friend of mine, but I'm so impressed. I've got to visit his church. I've got to see him in action, an amazing man of God, powerful man of God. And, uh, you know, I actually asked him to come with me when we went down and were able to give Fred Gray... Uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award from Hope Worldwide. And uh, we got to spend the whole day together. He and I have connected several times before, and we have a lot of common convictions, a lot of common vision for the future of the church. So I'm super excited about him preaching to us today. Uh, uh, just an amazing brother and amazing evangelist in the kingdom of God. So uh, we're going to go ahead and say a prayer, and then uh, we'll keep worshiping, and we'll get to hear Dr. Ben Barnett today. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We are so grateful for your mercy, your kindness. We are so grateful for the powerful ways that you are moving right now, Father. 
Father, we, we, we are uh, seeing hope, Father, for change. We are seeing hope for advancement in, in, in love and race relations. And we know, God, that we're having tough talks and we're going through some pretty tough things that need to be gone through. And we pray, Father, you'd guide us along. Help us to keep moving forward, especially as your church, especially as members of the kingdom of God. Help us, God, to get it, to grow, to learn, to heal, and to be able to be a light to the world, Father. Thank you for this morning. Open our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, my audience today is, uh, is a mixed group of people. First of all, I want to say hi to my Bridgepoint family. Uh, this is not being streamed live on Sunday like we typically do. Uh, but I was invited to uh, be a guest speaker at a few of our sister churches, uh, one in Los Angeles and one in Nashville. And so what I'm doing here today is uh, pre-recording the sermon that they could uh, stream live in their congregations on uh, Sunday. There's a lot going on in our world right now. Uh, this is a new day that we're able to live. Uh, every day that God has created is a day that we can rejoice and be glad in it. So I'm excited to be able to share the word today. I want to first just uh, thank uh, Matt Brown up in the Greater Nashville Church for reaching out to me and uh, asking me to be able to share God's word uh, with his congregation up there in Nashville. Uh, you guys are doing great work up there. And uh, we are uh, down here at Bridgepoint Church, part of our spiritual family, are praying uh, for you guys' success and safety uh, during this period of time. And then also just want to uh, thank my brother Robert Carrillo out in Los Angeles in the metro region. Um, Robert and I uh, go back and are great friends and have, uh, have a lot of same ministry interest. And so, Robert, I want to thank you for inviting me to speak to your congregation out there. Uh, I really appreciate all the work that you did at Hope Worldwide as the CEO and connecting uh, the churches back to Hope Worldwide and having a heart and concern for the poor and the needy and the marginalized. And I know that you'll continue to do that. Uh, I am glad to see you back leading, preaching, teaching, and shepherding uh, a people in a congregation. So uh, I know that those persons out there in Los Angeles are uh, great to have you leading them. Uh, all that being said, I mentioned this already, we are, and I'm not saying anything new right here, we're living in unprecedented times. Uh, we have a global pandemic that has made all human beings realize that we are closer to one another than we ever thought before. Uh, we're all vulnerable to a virus, a new novel virus, uh, that is really impacting people all across the world. Uh, it's new, but we also are under attack with a virus that is not new. Uh, and that virus we're seeing spread and uh, really dealt with all across the country, and that is the virus of racism. It's been around for a long time uh, in America, and the good news seems to be that there is an awakening that is going up and rising around. Conversations are taking place along the lines of uh, racism. Uh, I think even people that are uh, perhaps um, asymptomatic when it comes to uh, racial discourse are finally being awakened to what is going on uh, in our culture. Uh, there's a national conversation, albeit uh, performed in many different ways, taking place all across the country as well. And so what I want to do is to uh, really get into God's word and see if there is a word of encouragement, a word of inspiration uh, that we can pick out today. Uh, these are some thoughts that I've been having. Uh, I'm also a member of the International Church of Christ diversity team. And so we've been having meetings almost daily uh, for the last two weeks and uh, trying to help uh, church leaders and church members 
uh, address all the issues concerning race, uh, those that are systemic, those that are overt and covert as well. And uh, for us to respond in a way that's spiritual and Christ-like and be the disciples that Jesus called us to be. Uh, I'm going to use several passages here this morning. Uh, typically, I, if I was preaching my live stream, they would be up on a PowerPoint thing. Uh, I don't. Uh, I'm assuming that you are in a place sitting down comfortable. Perhaps you can go back and listen to this message again. Uh, I pray that you do. But uh, write down the scriptures and go back and review them uh, sometime throughout the week because I'm going to list a number of them and read them. And my assumption is you'll probably know a lot about the scriptures. Some of the stuff I want to share this morning is not new. Uh, it may have a new flavor and a new twist because we are in a different context than what we've been in a mighty long time. But I want to look in Ephesians chapter 6. It's one of my favorite chapters. It's where Paul is talking about the full armor of God. And in verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. This is the last chapter in Ephesians. And so he spent six chapters talking about a lot of different things. And he concludes by saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers. Some versions say principalities, rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I'm going to try to take a little liberty with with the Bible today in, in terms of really interpretation and trying to get meaning out of the text. I've always read Ephesians chapter 6 and read about rulers, authorities, powers, this dark world, principalities, and spiritual forces of evil as if these were all one thing and that they were all spiritual. Uh, I guess in our current context, I might be even reading into Ephesians chapter 6 a little bit, and I get stuck on the word and. That's a conjunction there between rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And so when I read that, what is, what is pretty clear to me is that what Paul is talking about is that we are in a spiritual war, but we're in a spiritual war on two fronts. Uh, one front is physical, is temporal, and is earthly. The other front is spiritual, eternal, and it is heavenly. And it's important to make that difference because Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 4, he says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says we're in the world, but we don't fight with weapons of the world. And he says, but we do have weapons. And I'm reluctant to use in this sermon the language of weapons and war and things of that nature, or even army metaphors. But I'm, I'm going to try to stick with the language that the Bible uses. And it says that we're, we're in a war, that there are weapons that we use. And the weapons that we use are important if we understand which front we're fighting. And so when Paul says about rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, Let's let's set that aside and say that's the physical world, the temporal world, the the earthly world that we live in. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We become saved and transformed by the blood of Jesus. We we enter God's kingdom, but we are still here on earth. And if we think every problem is just a spiritual problem, we won't address with with the right weapons how to address authorities, rulers and powers. There are strategies 
that are used for this dark world. And no matter how much uh, progress we make, no matter how much uh, development in technology, we still live in a world that is dark. And that's why we need Jesus who claimed to be the light of the world. And those who follow him, we walk in the light as God is in the light. So we're trying to bring light to the world. The world is darkness. But how do you address what weapons do you use for rulers, authorities, powers, principalities? And so I've been sharing with people here in Atlanta that one way you deal with earthly rulers, earthly powers, earthly authorities, principalities is you vote. That's a weapon. Voting, protesting, petitioning, all of these are weapons that we use to fight darkness in the world. How do we change authorities and change powers and address policy and principalities? It goes by voting. Yesterday in Georgia was the day to vote. My family and I, we all sat down the night before and we had absentee ballots because we wanted to we didn't want to be making just impulse decisions inside the voting booth. We wanted to sit down with the family and research the candidates and research their policies and their history and the things they've been done. Plus, you're not just voting for people, you're voting for for causes and other things that that affect me as a taxpayer and a citizen of the United States. And so there are authorities and powers and principalities working locally, regionally, nationally, uh, globally, that's all around me. How do we address those? We vote. We vote. That's a weapon that we have. And again, I'm reluctant to say weapon, weapon, weapon in war, uh, because we're not really dealing with the war in that case. But you understand that this is a weapon. This is how we can choose to engage earthly power, rules, and authority. Uh, in Georgia right now, Georgia is one of four states uh, that does not have a hate crime law. I was talking to a brother in the ministry last night who's been downtown protesting, really leading the protest in downtown Atlanta. And we we're on the phone last night and I asked him, I said, what do you want? You're protesting, but what do you want? Somebody's going to ask you, what do you want? And I said, one thing we, you could want is that we could want for Georgia. There's a law right now that we need to get our, those in authority and power and rulers to, to change and have Georgia have a hate crime law so that things like Ahmaud Arbery uh, can be different in the future if we have laws. The only way to change laws is to vote and to protest and speak truth to power. That is what we do in the physical world. That's not why I'm really preaching here today. Those are my opinions and thoughts about the physical world. That is temporal, what is earthly. I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. I'm a biblical teacher. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And what concerns me, and I feel like what is my lane that I get to navigate this world in, is, is the other part, the spiritual forces of evil, Paul says, in the heavenly realm. There is a war that is spiritual, and that war must be fought with weapons that deal with the spiritual, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons we fight with, he says, has divine power to demolish strongholds. Uh, I would submit to you that racism in America is a stronghold. What is a stronghold? You can look it up. Anything is a stronghold. It is a it is a firm position that is heavily defended. It could be a fortress that is fortified where you cannot penetrate it. That is a, a stronghold. It is a, a place, a location where we 
we hunker down and we we put defensive measures all around us and we have this stronghold and we try to keep it throughout our history for 400 years in the United States. We have dealt with racism and racial ideology and racial microaggressions and prejudice and bigotry and all kind of things. And throughout our history, we have had hopes. We have had progress. We've seen things improve. And then there's been ways where things come back and we're rioting. My daughter was watching Netflix the other day and she turned on and and watched the riots that took place in 1992 in Los Angeles. She was not even born yet. And I told her, I said, yeah, Peyton, when that stuff happened, I was your age right now. And when I saw that stuff happen in 1992 that was revealed, I looked back to 1961 in Los Angeles in 62 and 63 and saw it. And my daughter said, so it seems like every 25 years, this racism pops back up again. Legislation has cracked the foundation of this stronghold. Social intimacy has chipped away at the walls that are entrenched in this stronghold. But this stronghold of racism will stay around as long as those who are willingly and unwillingly, consciously and unconsciously, defending the strength of racism. The Bible teaches us, though, and this message is all about how do we use divine weapons to finally tear down this stronghold? Go back with me for a moment as a good example to the Israelites in Jericho. And God gave Joshua this unusual strategy to take down Jericho. Jericho was a stronghold, a city with a huge wall around. It was fortified, heavily shut in. It was a biblical stronghold. And God tells Joshua, this is the strategy. I want you to get the people, line them up, put the priests here, the singers here, the trumpets here. I want them to be quiet. I want you to walk around this, this fortress, this stronghold each day for six straight days. Then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around it seven times. And then I want you to praise and yell. And all of a sudden the walls come tumbling down. That is an example of using God's strategy to tear down strongholds. And God has given us some of those same strategies that we can use today. How can we tear down this stronghold of racism? When I say we, I'm talking about people of faith. I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about those who have been saved and redeemed and have the Holy Spirit as a deposit in our life, a spirit that is not timid, one that is one of a spirit of power, a spirit of love and a spirit of self-control. How do we bring about God's reign and God's kingdom in our time with the weapons that God has given us. And I want to share with you four of those uh, weapons here this morning. There's more. Uh, and I know when I say four, you might be at home already thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be uh, so long. Uh, trust me, it will not. Most of this you have heard before, and maybe you'll hear it with a, just a different twist. Here's, here's weapon number one. It is the word of God. And it's not just knowing the word of God, it's being able to speak the word of God. Go with me back to the gospel of Matthew. Jesus is baptized. And the Bible says that the spirit led Jesus out into the desert where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. At the end of that, there's the devil there coming to tempt him. And the devil comes and looks and knows that Jesus is hungry. And so the way the devil works, he, he tries to get right in there and give you what you need at the right time. And he knew that Jesus was hungry. And he says, look, you can take these stones. You have the power to do that. You could take these stones and you could turn them into bread and you can satisfy your belly. And how did Jesus respond? He responded by speaking the word of God. He said to the devil, it is written. 
it is written, and then he actually quoted a scripture. And he says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see Jesus speaking the word of God into this spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. But that is not, I'm not saying that's easy because the devil came right back at him. And the second temptation, the devil takes Jesus onto a top of a high building in the holy city and says, why don't you jump down? And then the devil quoted scripture to Jesus. And the devil said, it is written in the scriptures that the angels will come and rescue you because you will not harm yourself. And Jesus came back with the devil. It is written. So in short, we see Jesus having this battle with the devil. And all Jesus did really was to, to quote scripture. And at the very end, Satan goes, I know your end game. Your end game is to establish your kingdom on earth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you all the kingdoms on earth. I'm going I will give them to you right now. You can avoid the cross and all of its shame and all of its pain if you just bow down to me. And then Jesus said to him, away from me, for it is written. It is written. Worship and serve God only. We see Jesus speaking the word. And the time that we live in right now is easy for people to, and I've experienced this myself, to speak our feelings. Mine have been frustrating and anger. I've had to speak the word of God out of the book of Hebrews. It says, let no bitter root grow up and defile men. As a church leader, I've always thought that's my responsibility to let no bitter root grow up in people that are in the church. And I found myself over the last month or so wrestling with the, my own bitterness about race and about being black and about the things I've experienced in the world or even in the church. I've had to, I've had to speak the word of God to my own soul and say, let not a bitter root grow up. I've had to remind myself that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. I got a job to do. I got to speak to myself about being a minister of reconciliation, ambassador of Christ, that we are, we're trying to still implore people to be reconciled to God. And once they're reconciled to God, then we can be reconciled to one another. But we are given the ministry of reconciliation. I've had to have conversations with people to tell them, look, if, right now I think people need to follow James 1, 19 through 20. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. And slow to become angry because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. I've been fortunate to be around a number of white, you know, church members and white leaders and white friends have just asked me questions. You know, called me. I was on the phone today. Uh, what, what do I do? They asked me, what, what do I do? And I said, be quick to listen. They've asked me, what, what do I say? I said, I'm not sure what you need to say. You just need to be slow in saying it. Well, how do I respond? You need to be slow with anger or frustration or defensiveness. You just you need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. These are, these are God's words that, that can save us right now. So the number one weapon we have here is speaking God's word into our situation and into our churches and into our friends and making sure that we are thoroughly equipped to be able to use God's word. Number two, and I, again, this is going to be really simple. It's no surprise weapons here is prayer. And I know you may be sitting there thinking, prayer? I've already pray." You know, Peter writes, he says, be self-controlled and alert so you can pray. 
So does that mean if I'm out of control and not alert, I can't pray? And one thing I've always, you know, just been intrigued by is when the disciples saw Jesus praying in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, I don't know what they saw, but their response to Jesus was, teach us to do that. I don't know what they heard. I don't know what they saw. I don't know if it was the position of Jesus' body, the content of his mouth, the expression, the emotion that came from him. I'm not really sure. But when they saw Jesus praying, they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. So does that mean that prayer is actually a learned event, a learned thing we're supposed to do? And I think most Christians, we just assume that we automatically know how to do it. But what if we don't? What if we were not self-controlled alert enough to pray? And what if we've never been really taught to pray? And what does it mean to be taught to pray? And what did Jesus teach them? And then Jesus began with the Lord's Prayer. And he gave a model of what it's like to really connect with God in prayer. Paul here in Ephesians 6, when he closes out of the full armor of God, he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. You know, we get to see Jesus again battle the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Before going to the cross, the devil came to him and asked to sift Peter like wheat. And then Jesus comes back to Peter, and you might remember what he said to Peter. Hey, Peter, the devil has come to me, and the devil wants to play around with you for a moment. And if I'm Peter, I'm looking at Jesus, and I'm, I'm saying, well, Jesus, what did you say? Jesus, did you tell the devil to leave me alone? Did you tell him to back away? Did you tell him to get away? And Jesus said, no, I, I just prayed for you. I prayed that after you fail, that you'll basically come back and be able to strengthen your brothers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his apostles, come pray with me, watch and keep prayer. And the gospel described that Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, you guys stay here while I go over there and pray. And I've always wondered, what, what kind of prayer was it that where Jesus says, I'm going to go over here and pray, but I need y'all to watch me. Were they watching him or were they watching for people? Were they keeping his back? Were they listening? What was really going on here? It says it was a, a stone's throw away. He went and prayed by himself and they could watch him pr pray. And he prayed so hard that the gospel said that he was sweating blood. And can you imagine sweating blood because you're praying? So when I say that prayer is one of these divine weapons, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the, the prayer we throw up whimsical to God while we drive in a car. I'm talking about the kind of prayer where we have a place where we go. The Garden of Gethsemane means the, the place of pressing where they would have an olive press and Jesus would go there when his life, I believe, was being pressured. He knew that that's the spot that he goes to when it's time for him to pray. And I think when he asked the disciples to follow him to Garden of Gethsemane, they knew something was up because they had been there before. And Jesus tells them when he's praying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. Man, the flesh is so weak. The spirit wants to be spiritual and to fight but the flesh is so weak. And I think we all feel that from time to time when we make a, a plan to get up and read our Bibles in the morning or to pray, and the flesh tells us to roll over. The flesh tells us to hit the alarm clock. The flesh tells us there's 
We can do a whole lot of other things than praying. Prayer is powerful. And it is a weapon that can bring down a stronghold. Let me give you an example that's in the Bible, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas uh, are on a missionary journey, and they're successful. They meet a woman named Lydia. They baptize her and her whole household. They then meet a slave girl who's being manipulated uh, by her owners. They rescue, redeem her, and then right after that, they get arrested. And they're locked up there in Acts chapter 16, and they're put in the inner cell. And the Bible says that they're shackled and they're chained up. And it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. At midnight, Paul and Silas we're praying. You know, midnight is both a figurative time and a chronological time. Midnight is a figurative time because it, it means when it's, it's dark, it's the troubling time of our life. Everybody has had that dark night of the soul. All of us have struggled with something. And if we have and, and, we've, it, and, and we're chained and shackled by sin or addiction or beliefs, whatever. We, we're just shackled and chained up by it. And I think in America, racism has a hold on us. And right now is midnight in America. When we have a global pandemic and all the, the racial discourse that has taken place simultaneously in America... Young people, black people, white people, brown people, yellow people, rich people, poor people are protesting and carrying all kinds of signs all across the country day after day. I would say that it is midnight when a young black man in Georgia can be on a run and chased by a father and son who aren't police with a shotgun and a truck and kill him dead in the street. And it takes a video to bring that to light, then I would say it is midnight when the mother of Ahmad Arbery could, could have heard about her son and him, him dying without the video, him dying, she would have thought he died a criminal. It is midnight. And I would say when a, a white woman in the park can weaponize whiteness against a black man and know that it can work, it is midnight. When those who are charged with serving and protecting or killing. And I'm not saying all police are bad. Don't hear me. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there, there are some. It is midnight. And the black bodies that have been lost across the country, not just recently, but I'm talking about the last decade. And, the, and I don't even want to go through the, the list. The people have named those on and on. When those things are happening, it is midnight. When you have other nations outside the U.S. posting things that black lives matter. And I know some of these things may ruffle feathers and bother people a little bit, but I'm just trying to be, be truthful here today and say the things that I think we need to hear. When all that's going on, it's midnight. Right now in America, it is midnight. And midnight is that time, it's figurative, it's that time where we are, we are locked up in a stronghold. A prison is a stronghold. And Paul and Silas were not only in the prison, they were in the inner cell of the prison. And they were shackled to the floor. 
And they had every reason to be mad at God. I mean, they were they were baptizing people and changing the life of a little girl. So why would God allow them to be in the inner cells? And they could have sat there and they could have complained to God. They could have said they don't like God. They don't understand God's strategy. They don't understand what what God is doing. But that's not what they did at the midnight hour. It requires us to do something different. And what they did at midnight was they prayed and they praised They prayed and they praised and they sung songs. And the Bible says other prisoners were listening to them. Midnight is also a chronological time as well. It's the time that we move to the new day. At midnight, one day is over and a new day begins. And I'm praying and hoping that a new day in America will begin. I pray that This will be the midnight that is figurative, but this will also be the midnight that is chronological, that this will be a time in America where America will be different when it comes to racial injustice. You know, I've been in uh, all kinds of meetings uh, and calls, and I appreciate that, but it it has been overwhelming uh, just talking about race and, and racism and reconciliation and almost COVID has taken a back seat in many ways. Uh, I've been, uh, thank God for Zoom, we can't come together as a church, but I've been Zooming like crazy. Uh, I'm pretty much in three, four Zoom meetings every day. But you know what I haven't, what Zoom meeting I haven't been in? I haven't been in a midnight prayer Zoom. Nobody set that up. We haven't come there. I haven't been in many Zooms where all we did was pray. What would it look like if brothers and sisters all across the country could get online at midnight and just pray and just praise? Maybe what could happen with us is what happened with Paul and Silas. They were there, and imagine this, when they're praying and praising, the ground starts to shake. The foundations start to shake. And when the foundations start to shake, they start to crack. And then the walls start to crack. And what happened was the the doors flew open and the prisoners came out and the shackles fell off Paul and Silas and they were set free. And then they turned around and baptized the oppressor. That's what praying does, real praying does to the stronghold. It demolishes it. And it tears it down just like it did this prison here in Acts 16. The third one is close to prayer and it's fasting. We have the weapon of fasting. In Mark chapter 9, and and I would love to do just a whole sermon on each one of these or a series of sermons on each one of these. But in Mark chapter 9, Jesus, this is when he had gone up on the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And he left the other nine at the bottom. And so when they go up there, they're transfigured. Jesus comes down. He hears arguing going on. And the apostles are there with with a a little boy's father and the communion family around him. And they're arguing. And Jesus comes down. And you can almost sense his frustration because something is not right. And he asked him and the father said, "Uh, my son has a, a spirit that's trying to kill him. Spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. There's a spirit. Maybe he has some other physical ailment, who knows. But the father thought it was spiritual, and Jesus treated it like it was spiritual. So we're going to treat it like it was a spiritual thing. 
And he said, he's just trying to kill him. Jesus said, bring the boy to me. How long has it been like this? And he looked around somewhat disappointed because apparently the disciples should have been able to do something for this little boy. The father thought they could. Jesus believed they could, but they didn't believe it. And so they couldn't do anything. So Jesus changed the whole situation, the boy. And then the, the apostles walk up to Jesus and go, what happened? Why, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we do this? And I got my own opinions about it. And since I'm preaching, I'm going to, I'm going to share it with you. Uh, I think the reason why they couldn't drive out the demons, it wasn't just about believing. I think they were all stuck in their feelings. I think they were still thinking about Peter, James, and John being invited to the top of the mountain, and it wasn't them. I think they were thinking about not being able to, on another time, to be part of the three, and they were part of the nine. And I can imagine all of them talking about Jesus, talking about Peter, James, and John as they were walking through the village. And so it is hard to be a representative of Jesus when we are full of uh, arguments and justifications and we're critical and we're bitter. It's hard to be the people that we need to be. And unfortunately, there are always people that are looking to followers of Jesus to be different to be able to say something different, to be able to act different, to somehow render some power that they believe Christians have. And far too often in this world, we as Christians and people of faith and disciples of Jesus, we disappoint people. And they may not argue with us, but they walk on and they said, man, forget Jesus, forget church, just a bunch of hypocrites because we're all stuck in our feelings. I don't have time to preach this, but I want you to, to read Isaiah 58. Because this whole point about this spiritual weapon here that has divine power to demolish racism uh, is fasting. And in Isaiah 58, it, God gives us, through the prophet Isaiah, the, the perfect understanding of what fasting is. And just to give you a sneak preview, the people there Isaiah are talking to, they're, wonder, they're praying to God, and they've been fasting, and they're wondering why God hasn't responded. And God said, I haven't responded because your your fasting ain't right. You're not you're not doing it right. He says, and, and then he began to explain exactly what kind of fast he wants. He says, the fast I want is to loosen the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke, to provide food for the poor and the hungry and to clothe the naked. And if you read that, you may go, what does that have to do with eating? And that's the point. You read Isaiah 58, you'll see that the kind of fasting that can demolish strongholds is not how many days we can go without food. It is about what we choose to do with our life. Now, let me finish out here with number four. And this one may not, it's not like, you know, God's word and praying and fast and some of those uh, spiritual disciplines that we are aware of. This fourth one is very important. And I, I'm just calling it, you know, telling the truth, uh, a weapon of truth. I get very concerned that we live in a culture and context where truth has already been relative. You have your truth. I got my truth. And then there's the truth. But now even that kind of truth seems to be eroding. In John 8 and verse 31 and 32 we know this very well to the Jews who had believed in Jesus. Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. You know the truth. The truth will set you free. Jesus is the truth. He tells us in John 14, I, I, I am the, the way, the truth, and life. 
And so we know that Jesus truth, Jesus does indeed set us free, but truth in general sets us free. The truth will set us free. We are captured to this stronghold and many of us are not set free because we don't embrace truth. In that same chapter of John 8, verse 43 and 45, Jesus speaks truth in 31 and 32, and then he comes back in 43 and 45, and he says this. He's speaking to people, and he asks them a question. Why is my language not clear to you? And then he answers it. He says, because you are unable to hear what I say. And then in verse 44, he goes, I'm going to tell you why you're unable to hear what I say. And this is a, a tough reading right here. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. I believe that the number one tactic and strategy for the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm is deceit and lies. That has been the strategy since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were deceived and Satan has has had the same strategy. And if he can get deceit and he can get lies into our lives, we are sunk. Right now, I get concerned about our inability to see with our own eyes and to hear with our own ears. Because I know there's times that there's stuff I see and I go, that's not true. But then it gets passed as true. And there's things I hear and I go, did I just hear that? that? And I look around at other people and I go, did anybody get that? That doesn't seem to be true to me. Am I the only one not doing this? We can't trust our eyes and we can't trust our ears. And truth is quickly becoming something that really doesn't matter anymore. And how do we discern truth in the culture in which we live? Proverbs 12, 22 says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 21 through 25, he says, Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with your regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of of one body. You know, just three months ago, around the first week in March, uh, I finally completed uh, a doctoral degree, well, another doctoral degree, uh, a doctorate of ministry from McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. And I did my oral defense and my topic in research really for the last four years, almost every book that I've read for the last four years has been on race and racism and reconciliation. And my project was entitled Breaking the Silence, Having Courageous Conversations About Race, Racism, and Reconciliation in the Local Church. And so this is what I did. In our sister churches here in Atlanta, Georgia, I sought out 15 people to be a part of a focus group. And uh, I had to 
narrowed down the scope of my project. And so I, I made it race, but be about black and white. I didn't include brown and yellow if you want to use colors to represent people because the work would have been too long. And so I pulled it in, 15 people. We met for four weeks. We began with prayer. We took a covenant to be together. We watched a 20-minute video on racial topics, some like meaningful conversations on race, deconstructing white privilege, continued struggles in race, relations in the beloved community. They watched the video. There were discussion questions, and I was there as a facilitator. I just kind of listened and observed the group. I did video record our interaction. And when you're recorded, sometimes you forget you're being recorded. But I recorded our interaction so that I could go back and analyze it later. I gave each participant a journal to write in. And I told them in the group, we're not going to have time to say everything. You might want to jot down some stuff that we don't have time to say and or jot down some stuff you don't feel like you can bring up in the group. And so they did that. And then after some of the meetings, I was doing personal interviews with some of the people and I was recording that information. So when the project was over, I pulled back. I watched the video from an observer point of view and I could see body language and I can see people say one thing and a body say, say another thing. I watched where people sat. I saw people cry. I was able to view it from a different perspective. I read the journals that were very vulnerable. People shared things in the journals that they did not share with anybody else. And in personal interviews, people began to trust me and say things that I have kept private in my own spirit. And once I looked at all the stuff, this was my big takeaway. That even at our best, when we begin to talk about race, we're only at the tip of the iceberg. And what I noticed in the conversations with the people in the group is that we don't speak truthfully to people. And it's not because we want to be deceitful or we want to lie. We just don't know how to talk about race. It's complex. It's sensitive. There's probably some things I've said here in the message that people are at home or, you know, are ready to email me and talk about. The Bible says that we need to put off falsehood and to speak truthfully. And I remember some of the interactions with the people in the group. And I had read journals and done interviews. So I had conversations with people that other persons didn't. And I thought to myself, This person over here is put off by what this person just said. But if this person over here had read that person's journal, they would understand why that person said what they did and why they had the emotion that they had. And I was available to have that information, but the people did not. So one way that we have divine power is for us to be able to sit down and to have humble, vulnerable, courageous conversations about race so that we bring stuff that's really deep below the surface up to the surface. And then when we're talking to one another, it's the real us who's showing up and not the false us. And we can tear down this stronghold. The, the thing that puts all these weapons together is the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John 14, 15 and 16 said, I'm going to leave you. And I'm going to leave you the spirit, though. And then Jesus says, you're going to do greater things than I. And I read that and think greater things than Jesus. You know, brothers and sisters, we need to we need to be better. We need to do better and we can do better. We need to have greater expectations for ourselves as disciples of Jesus and for our churches that we believe that are in Christ.
And this does not mean that we are better than anyone else simply because we try to do better. It simply means we are better because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And tell me what we can't do if we don't believe what Paul said here in 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. It means it's a spirit of fear. This is not a time for us to be timid or fearful because we have the spirit of God. God gave us a spirit of power. God gave us a spirit of love. And God gave us a spirit of self-control. Let's do greater things. Amen. You've just listened to the Metro LA Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit MetroLARegion.com 